0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you go ahead and uh, uh, turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, for the last two weeks, what we've done is we've just sort of camped on the first two verses. And uh, last week, we talked about holding fast to the gospel. So uh, tonight, Lord willing, we'll get through verses uh, 3 through 8. Let me read that for you. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So uh as we as we move into this section um just a reminder that the reason 1 Corinthians 15 exists is because there were people at Corinth who believed that Christians were not going to be physically raised from the dead um there's, there's no reason to think that they were denying Christ's resurrection, but what they were doing is they were denying our physical future resurrection. You see that in verse 12. And it is, it is that that is incredibly troubling to Paul because Paul sees a direct correlation between Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. And so Paul's reasoning in 1 Corinthians 15 is, if the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is in vain. Our preaching is empty, and you're still in your sins. And so uh, this is actually worth uh, just understanding because so often we, we have a view of salvation that is, um, I don't know, maybe um, philosophically platonic where we view this, uh, this separation of the physical and the spiritual, and we end up uh, thinking that salvation is simply, uh, I go to heaven when I die. Now, now make no mistake about it. It's good to go to heaven when you die. You don't want the alternative. But that's not, that's not the end goal. That's not the way God sees this plan of redemption playing out. The plan of redemption reaches its consummation when your body is raised up from the dead and is made like our Lord Jesus' resurrected, glorified body. That's when your redemption is consummated. And so there is no... Uh, as as strange as it sounds to us, because we've been, you know, so uh, steeped in, uh, you know, salvation, just being all about your, your soul going to heaven when you die, the fact is, is that God cares about your body, and he's provided redemption for your body, and there will be a future resurrection of your body that will inhabit a renewed heaven and earth forever. And so, as I noted last week, there is this sanctified earthiness about salvation, about redemption, and what Christ has come to do for us. Um, By the way, Jesus himself underscores that after the resurrection when he's uh, at the shore of Galilee and he's eating fish. Think about all the things that Jesus could have done, right? Right? You know, like, hey, watch this, guys. Guess what a glorified, resurrected body can do? And all this kind of, like, amazing stuff. You know, whoa, he was there one second, he's there the next. Or he just walked through a wall, amazing. But notice what he does. He eats. It's a sanctified earthiness, all right? So we get into this section 3 through 11, actually 3 through 8, where Paul says, I delivered to you among first things. Right, So th- we're going to see there's this language, so delivered, right? So if if you deliver something, you are literally handing it over to somebody. all right? So here's Paul, and um, uh, so a Bible quiz. Where did Paul get his gospel? who Who handed the gospel over to Paul? Well, Christ himself. in fact, Paul is emphatic in Galatians 1:12 that the gospel which he preaches, he did not receive from man, nor was it given to him through man, right? Prepositions matter, but he received it as a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, the gospel that Paul preached was handed to him by none other than the resurrected Jesus. And so Paul sees himself as... Um, as, as one who has been given a deposit that he, in turn, needs to deliver, hand over to other people. And so there is this language, that which he received, he turns around and delivers. How does he deliver it? He delivers it through the preaching. He delivers it through the teaching of God's Word. There's also a sense where... Um, it's not just the gospel, but it is, it is the entire apostolic tradition that is received and then handed over, right? So, b- by the way, that is, that is the technical language of tradition, receive, hand over, all right? And, and the reason we know that is because of the way that, for instance, Paul talks about the tradition regarding the Lord's Supper, that which I received, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and so forth. So so Paul sees himself as not just a a repository for divine truth, a, a receptacle of divine truth, the gospel, apostolic tradition, but he sees himself also as somebody who has to hand it over, right? By the way, even though Paul has a unique handing over type ministry, The fact is, is that everyone who has received is under obligation to, in turn, give. That means every single one of us who have received the gospel, we have an obligation to turn around and give. Jesus says, freely you have received, now freely give. All right? So... Paul then says what he delivered, and that is the things of first importance. That is the the basic, most fundamentals of the faith. Schreiner says, the baselines and touchstone for all that is taught. And so, um, by the way, the, the minute that Paul says things of first importance, you know what the implication is, don't you? There are things second importance <laughs> all right a- and perhaps things of third importance okay. so every time we do a sunday or a, a baptism class we do this little exercise so if you've been to a baptism class raise your hand okay. well look at all you guys all right so i do a little thing you guys remember this i draw a big circle on the white board and then a circle inside the circle right and we're taught- we talk about the things that are essential, and then the things that are not essential okay so here's a quiz just for those of you that went to the baptism class. If we put something in the non essential category, does that mean it's not important? Not at all, in fact. I would say everything that gets put in that non-essential category ends up being important, all right? But what we're doing is we're making a distinction between things that matter most and things that are of a secondary nature. That's what we're doing. So we put... And, 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 and basically, the kids do better than the adults. So we say, uh, so what belongs in this middle circle? And, of course somebody will say that, uh, that Jesus is both God and man, all right? So does that belong in the essential circle? So ab- absolutely. Um, someone, uh, normally I have to sort of milk it out of them uh, to get the Trinity, all right? But does the Trinity belong in that middle circle, right? Essential circle, right? So you have the Trinity, you have Jesus Christ, both God and man. Um, and then you have other things that belong in that Essential circle, like what? Virgin birth. I am emphatic. The virgin birth needs to go in that essential circle. All right. If you don't put it there, you flunk the class, and I drown you, not baptize you. Okay. Right. Anything else? The resurrection. Yeah, good, Lily. The resurrection. Guess what? Paul would go. Uh, resurrection goes first, right? Okay, so what else goes in that middle circle? The ascension of Jesus. Yes, absolutely. Often forgotten, but definitely. Anything else? Okay, so tell me what you mean like the gospel. Okay, so just give me one essential of the gospel. I mean, you could look right at Verse 3, if you wanted, (laughs) Christ died for our sins, all right? Does that go in the middle circle? Answer is yes. So you're starting to get a feel for this, all right? So people will say things like, so Jesus died for our sins. That's the essential circle. Jesus was raised from the dead, essential circle. Um, Jesus ascended into heaven, essential circle. Jesus is coming back again. Does that go there? Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. That goes there. Jesus will return personally, visibly, with power and glory a second time. That goes there. All right? There are other things that go there. Okay? Okay? The universal sinfulness of man. Okay? Does that actually belong in the essential circle? And the answer is yes, because if we are not sinners, then none of this other stuff makes any sense. Okay. So, yeah, universal sinfulness. Um, we usually add a few other things. Saved by grace. Okay. So, something like, um, oh. Like grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Right. So how we're saved because what if I what if I put in that circle saved by works? I flunked the class, that's right. Uh, <laughs> very clearly I flunked the class. So if I say salvation by works, that actually puts me Outside of, by the way, you know what that circle is called? We call that circle orthodoxy. Okay. So salvation by faith, Phil? Yes, and I, I'm I'm absolutely happy to affirm that. Yes, it is. It is a trick question, always, isn't it? All right. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, you had your hand up. Okay, the sufficiency of his work, absolutely. So the person and work of Christ, okay? Um, how about an inspired Bible? Okay. What if somebody goes, oh, you know what, I, I really like Jesus, but this whole Bible stuff I don't really care for. Is that person a Christian? No, absolutely not. Oliver? the sovereignty of God. You are a good boy, okay? Yes, all right. <laughs> okay, so so we've got this, this circle, and we go, these are the things that matter most, and the reason that they matter most is because if you deny one of them, they put you outside of the circle of the Christian faith, so if I deny the bodily resurrection, I'm not a Christian. If I deny the the, the deity and humanity of Jesus, I'm not a Christian. If I deny the sacrificial uh, death of Jesus on the cross for my sins, I'm not a Christian. Right? If I deny the Trinity, I'm not a Christian. If I don't believe the Bible, I'm not a Christian. So that, that, that center circle is my essential circle. It is the circle of orthodoxy, and it is believing those things that put me in the mainstream of the historic Christian faith. And you got the bigger circle, and you got all kinds of stuff in that bigger circle. But if you disagree with something in that bigger circle it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. What it means is that you're a Presbyterian or a Charismatic or a Methodist or a Lutheran or something, right? By by the way, it is in that larger circle of of secondary issues that actually gives us different theological traditions and denominations. So... the Holy Spirit. Do you have to believe that the Holy Spirit is divine in order to be a Christian? The answer is yes, if you're going to believe in the Trinity. What about the gifts of the Spirit? Are Is the topic of the gifts of the Spirit important? Absolutely. But guess what? If you tell me that you speak in tongues, I'm not going to say, you're demon-possessed and you're going to, going to go to hell. Does it? If... I'm getting to Romans 4, 9 to 12 this coming Lord's Day. We go from the, the bliss of the joy of justification to justification and circumcision, right? I, just, I love preaching on circumcision. It's one of my favorite things. But the text, one of the texts that we're going to look at is actually a proof text for paedobaptism. that circumcision was the sign and seal of the covenant, and pedo that if it's for Presbyterians, United Reform, not, not, not like weird pedo-baptists like Catholics and Lutherans, but like covenantal pedo-baptists, they baptize their babies because they see an analogy between circumcision and baptism, and they see an analogy between the covenant with Abraham and the new covenant, and so they, they make this. Uh, now, do I think they're wrong? Of course they're wrong, right? And so every dead Presbyterian is now a Baptist, all right? Um, (laughs) But here's the thing, is that differences over baptism, that doesn't mean you're out and I'm in, okay? It's a secondary issue important issue? Absolutely, right? And you can just go right on down the line. And so when Paul gets to this phrase, I delivered to you of things of first importance, he's with the Corinthians for 18 months, and do you know what he could say? I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul says, you know, now, did he teach on all these other things? And the answer is yes, he taught on a bunch of stuff, to the Corinthians. Just consider the letters. But here's the thing. You could say this about Paul. He kept the main thing the main thing. And he... So I make known to you the gospel, right? So he had a passion to actually be telling them these things of first importance. You know, it is, a, it is an absolute tragedy, and sometimes this is, this is a problem... In, in Reformed and Baptistic churches, and that is we excel in knowing all about domestic piety and the roles of men and women and the roles of husbands and wives and how to raise your children in 88 ways not to screw it up and all of that, and, and, and all of that's important. But here's the thing is we might excel in a number of these other peripheral issues and be ignorant of the gospel, I know a church, I won't say which church it is, they had a pastor for a number of years who actually taught, he he was sought after as an expert on on biblical domestic piety. He He got kicked out of the ministry for sexual infidelity. The guy that took over is a good friend of mine. And he said after the first year, he says, Brian, these people don't even know the gospel. Okay? So it can happen. It can happen. That's why you preach the gospel and you preach it all the time. All right. So what does Paul mean by this? He says, that which I, de- I delivered to you of, of first things, which you received. So this is obviously the counterpart of delivering. And by the way, I'm not going to go over it right now because I don't have time. But just jot down if you're taking notes. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, you received it as it really is, the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, in Philippians 4.9, these are all passages where Paul explicitly talks about, you heard from me, you learned from me, you received what I had to say. You received it. And, of course, the idea of receiving it is not simply mental assent. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay. Um, there was an earthquake in Tonopah today, and that's true. It's not just a fact that you just assent to; you receive it. It becomes yours. It, you internalize it. Have you ever? Have you ever thought about the fact that in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses drinking and eating as metaphors of faith? Why? Because when you eat and you drink, you internalize something for yourself. That's the idea of receiving, is you internalize it for yourself. So, kids, you have to listen to this. You will never come to know God simply because your mom and dad know God. Doesn't work that way. Just doesn't. You actually have to receive the truth of the gospel for yourself. Mom and dad's faith is not something that is put into a box and handed to you and that you then open up and, and voila, mom and dad's faith is your faith. No, your faith has to actually be something that is between you and the living God personally. Okay? Parents, don't forget that. For the, for the love of your kids, evangelize your children. Tell them the gospel. Don't ever assume the gospel with your kids. They hear it at church, they hear it. Press them with the claims of the gospel. Urge them to receive Christ. Urge them to receive the gospel. Dads, you are the evangelist of your family. Evangelize your kids. We don't believe in presumptive grace. We don't presume that our kids are Christians until they prove otherwise. We believe that they're sinners that need to be born again. And so you tell them the gospel, and you urge upon them the necessity of being born again. Okay? So Paul says, so what, you've, uh, uh, what you have uh, uh, heard from me, what I delivered to you, you received. And then here's the content of it. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Okay? Now, you have to understand that for Paul, we noted this. Um, we've noted this dozens of times. For Paul, Paul does not look at the gospel as something that is um, that's brand new. The gospel is actually magnificently old. Right, we've seen it in Romans a number of times. And so for Paul, when he says, according to the Scriptures, what Scriptures is he talking about? It's the Old Testament, right? So Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So you might remember we spent like three months going through the doctrine of the atonement. Remember? And we did all these Old Testament texts, and you remember this? It wasn't that all that long ago, right? And so the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, actually um, uh, teach us through multifaceted ways about the death of Christ, right? So how does the Old Testament teach? I've never read in the Old Testament, Jesus died for my sins, But Jesus dying for my sins is actually in the Old Testament. Where? Isaiah fifty three. I think that is like the that is that is the Everest text of Jesus dying for my sins according to the scriptures. Isaiah fifty three. Is that all we got? The the whole sacrificial system, yeah. So guess what? Leviticus is all about Jesus dying for my sins. The priesthood is all about Jesus dying for my sins. The the, the very institution of the tabernacle and the temple is all about Jesus dying for my sins. Psalm 22 is about Jesus dying for my sins, right? Okay. uh, Abraham taking uh, uh, Isaac up on the Mount Moriah uh, is is all about Jesus dying for my sins. Okay? So it's all over the place. Okay? It's all over the place in terms of predictive prophecy. Isaiah 53, I would say Psalm 22. It is all over the place in types and shadows, right? And so guess what? Anywhere you read the idea of substitution, anywhere you read the idea of sacrifice, anywhere you read the idea of, of, um, of, of a remedy for sin, deliverance from sin, you know what you're reading about in Old Testament pictures and words is Jesus dying for your sins. Okay? According to the scriptures. Paul says it's all over. Then notice this. That he was buried. So here's uh, things of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, why do you think, by the way, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, crucified, died, and was buried. The early Christians were always emphatic to say Jesus was buried. You know why? Why? as a polemic against um, cremation. No. (laughs) I mean, I think you can use it that way, but that's not why Jesus was buried. Who do you bury? Dead people, (laughs) right? You bury somebody alive, you go to the penitentiary for the rest of your life. It's against the law. You can't do it, all right? And so burial is significant for two reasons. One, it authenticates the death of Jesus, but it also authenticates the resurrection of Jesus. So burial is one of the things, we don't normally think about it, right? But burial is one of the things of most importance, okay? Is Jesus' burial actually spoken of in Scripture? Well, not very much, but in some ways, yes. Okay. He, was with, he was with wicked man with, with, with wicked men in his death, and he was buried with a rich man in his death. Right? Isaiah fifty three nine, of course, prophecy of. Um, Joseph of Arimathea giving up his brand new tomb. Um, There are other ways that Jesus' burial is indicated. And uh, Jesus actually says one over and over and over again. Jonah, the sign of Jonah, right? So just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish. And actually, if you read the book of Jonah, um, it's not just that he's in the belly of the great fish. You read his prayer, where, where, where does Jonah say he is? In Sheol, okay, in the grave. Jesus says, just like Jonah was in the grave, Son of Man will be in the grave. Okay. So we got the burial, but then notice this raised according to the scriptures. Okay. So here's, here's something that is um, a good exercise. Where in the world in the old testament does it talk about the resurrection of Jesus? This this will be on the entrance exam when you stand at the pearly gates. Psalm 16. How do we know that that's re- a reference to Jesus' resurrection? Peter tells us so on the, on the day of Pentecost, right? David's tomb is still with us, and he points to Psalm 16. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo corruption. Okay. Peter understands that to be the resurrection of David's greater son. Okay. By the way, there uh, there are um, a multitude. And notice explicitly it says that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. You see that? So it's not just resurrection... It's third-day resurrection that is according to the Scriptures. Oh, no, this is, this is fascinating. So you can look at a number of passages that, um, that speak of resurrection. So, for instance, in Psalm 22, the, the sufferer in Psalm 22, uh, in the first part of the psalm, suffers actually suffers under the anger of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and he is pierced. And there is a sense in which you read the first part of Psalm 22 and the sufferer, the the implication is the sufferer dies. And then the sufferer actually comes back and declares God's name among the brethren. And by the way, a passage that's used in Hebrews in reference to the resurrection of Jesus. You have uh, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 actually talks about resurrection so does the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 die? Absolutely, emphatically, yes. He offers up his soul as a guilt offering, and he is led to death. He's, he's a lamb led to the slaughter. And then Isaiah says he will look upon uh, the travail of his soul, and he will be satisfied. By the way, think about that. If the travail of his soul is suffering unto death, and he looks on the travail of his soul and is satisfied, the implication is he is alive. But then Isaiah tells us even more explicitly that he actually will live to see his children, and God will give him the spoils of his victory. Resurrection, resurrection. Um, What does Jonah do? uh, Or let's let's ask it differently: What does the big fish do with Jonah? He vomits him up. Okay, right? Right. So here, by the way, you talk about a little earthiness in the Bible. Here's the picture of resurrection a big fish vomiting up a living person onto the shore, okay? We actually know that that's the picture of resurrection because Jesus explicitly says it is, okay? By the way, not just once. I count, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, five times where Jesus actually makes direct reference to the sign of Jonah, all right? But here's here's the interesting thing. We have these, these patterns, but what's, what's, what's really fascinating is that it's third day. Okay. Can you think of any passage that just says, resurrection, third day resurrection? So th- this, by the way, has always captivated me. So back on uh, March 27th, 2005, you'll remember, of course, that I preached a sermon called According to the Scriptures. Okay. And in my own study, I discovered eight Old Testament third day resurrection passages. Okay? Recently, though, I just discovered this book by uh, an Old Testament scholar, Warren Gage, called Milestones to Emmaus, the third day resurrection in the Old Testament. He identifies 40 third day resurrections in the Old Testament, puts them into six major categories. Some are... um, some are, uh, let's say, more implicit than explicit. So, for instance, one of those that he mentions is uh, even in Psalm 16, when David says, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo corruption. Okay? In Jewish thought, what, is the, what day does the corruption actually set in? Not the third day. The fourth day. You do know that. The fourth day was considered to be the day of corruption. Do we actually have anything in the Bible that corroborates Jewish tradition of the fourth day being the day of corruption? Lazarus. Move the stone. Lord, it's the fourth day. Behold, King Jimmy, he stinketh. Okay? Gage says the significance of saying he will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay or corruption is because he's raised before the day of corruption. Which of course is the third day. You have uh, Abraham taking uh, uh, Isaac up on Mount Moriah, and guess when God actually um, provides the ram in the place of Isaac on the third day, right? You have you have actually just a number of these, right? One of our problems is that we read the Bible. When I was a, when I was in college. I used to hear this kind of thing all the time. Um, you read the Bible like you read any other book. Okay. You you have just a normal lens of interpretation. So you go to the Bible like you go to uh, the Wall Street Journal, or you go to the Bible like you go to you know a- any number of genres. and And I just want to say that that is. Um, That is wrong. It's wrong. And the reason that it's wrong is because those very disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens their eyes to see what's in the scriptures. Any old knothead can read what's in the Wall Street Journal. You need to have your eyes open to understand and to see the Scriptures. And so, in order to... By the way, the Pharisees and the scribes were, were, were quite fine exegetes. They had the historical grammatical method of interpretation down pat, and yet they could not see Christ. There was a veil that was over their eyes. And so the Spirit of God lifts that veil. And so we should actually pray that God helps us to see Christ. You start to see, uh, by the way, the whole idea of a type, right? A type is simply a pattern. A pattern points to a greater fulfillment. This is what typology does. You have a pattern and that pattern is, is something that is woven in over and over again and then points to something greater. And it points to something greater in all different ways. Now, I'm not talking about just going crazy and going, oh, look, the the red cord that came over the wall of Jericho, that's the blood of Christ, right? not talking about that kind of allegory. I'm talking about seeing the types and the patterns in Scripture that give you a trajectory to see. And one of the things that you see over and over and over again is this whole pattern of death and resurrection. Israel itself fits into this pattern. Israel, when it is exiled, is a picture of, of a valley of what? Dry bones. Disconnected dry bones. Okay. If you're out hunting and you see the skull of, let's say, a deer here, and then you see a couple of leg bones over here, and then you see the rib cage over there, you don't say, man, that guy's having a bad day. Rough. You see scattered, dried bones you can make You don't even have to be a biologist to be able to do this. You can make a very clear determination. Death has occurred. That's Israel. What does God do in Ezekiel 37? He brings the dry bones back together by the way, which is a picture of spirit-empowered new life. Pattern of death and resurrection, death and resurrection, bondage, death, resurrection. And so when you read the Old Testament, read it and look for Christ. Don't read the Old Testament like a rabbi. Remember years ago, there was a lady in our church and she was, you know, and, and we'll see again the, the advantage of being Jewish in, in Romans 4, okay? so, But here's the thing, is that sometimes Christians get all caught up about everything Jewish, okay? And she would ask me, so have you read uh, Rabbi So-and-So on Genesis? I'm like, no. Uh, now, there are some good Jewish commentators that you can get some good exegetical information. Oh, you should read Rabbi so-and-so on the book of Esther. I was preaching through the book of Esther at that time. And I'm like, ah, no, that's okay. No, but they, they get, Goyim, you can't, I'm thinking you're Goyim too, you're not even Jewish. And, uh, and but you, you got to get the insight, insight from people that have a veil over their eyes, according to Second Corinthians 3. I don't want insight from somebody with the veil on. I want, somebody, I want insight with somebody with the veil off. So pray that God takes away the veil, opens your eyes, sees Christ, right? Sees, th- sees connections that you might not normally make. Jason's going through the book of Judges. I've preached the book of Judges. Sometimes it's not always easy to see uh, in in which way this trajectory takes us to Christ. Jason's doing a fine job, but I will tell you this. It is sometimes hard when you're looking at Samson going, okay, he's he's not a model for anybody. He's not a type for anybody. And then you read crazy little things like, Samson actually delivering the nation through his death. Okay. Or maybe the longing for a better judge. Right. Even that points you to Christ. Okay. So read in a way that... <laughs> Here, let me say it this way. Read on this side of the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. Don't read the Bible as if Jesus never came into this world. Don't read the Old Testament as if you're, as if you're still waiting for Jesus. You read it as, the, as, 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 as that which was promised and now has been fulfilled. And Paul says, so here's the things of most importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us a series of appearances, all right? And the appearances are, are significant for a number of reasons. Not the least of which is that it is verification and authentication of the resurrection, you do understand that that's what's happening. This is, this is one of the things that absolutely distinguishes Christianity from every other religion on the face of the planet, and that is ours is, 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 is a, a faith that is rooted in historical events, which has the evidence of eyewitnesses. Okay? Okay. By the way, the, the, uh, the Buddha, whatever his name was, um, he could have never been born, and could you still have Buddhism without, uh, what was his name? Guatemala, Hachichuchi, or whatever. I can't, uh, huh? Siddhartha, I don't know. That sounds like a superhero to me. Uh, Siddhartha? Okay, so Siddhartha, whoever he was, could have never been born. Could you still have Buddhism without Siddhartha? And the answer is, of course you could, because it is philosophical pillars of of how to live life, right? By the way, um, um, uh, uh, Muhammad could have actually never been born, and you could still have Islam. But guess what? Everything hinges on the historicity of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says, after Jesus was raised, he appeared first to Cephas. Okay. So why does Cephas, Peter, <laughs> by the way, notice he doesn't call him Peter, he calls him Cephas. That could be Paul's proclivity, because Paul's Jewish, so Cephas is his, Peter's Jewish name. But it also could be sort of, um, you know, uh, reference to, uh, let's say, the, sort of the old guy, Right? Not old like Arnie old, but old like the old, old man versus the new man, all right? And so Cephas, he appears to Cephas first. And Why is this important? He denied him. Okay? It's important because it's historical, but it's important also because of Peter's place among the apostles and the fact that Peter was one who denied the Lord Jesus and so Peter is singled out by the way, he's singled out by Jesus in John twenty. go and tell Peter and the other disciples, okay uh, then to the twelve now, of course, if you're good at math, you might realize that it's not actually twelve, right okay. because. Judas already went and hanged himself, okay? But in all likelihood, okay, this is just, the 12 is just shorthand for the apostolic band, all right? Um, of course, Jesus makes a number of appearances, and in fact, the first time he appears to the disciples, it's only the 10, okay? Thomas wasn't there, By the way, J.C. Ryle has a wonderful sermon, and he says about Thomas, he goes, see what happens when you miss a church service? You never know what might happen. And so it was 10, and then it was 11, but but the fact is is that it's like to Peter and then to the rest of the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once. Paul then says something interesting, most of whom remain, but some have fallen asleep. This is one of the most remarkable things. In all likelihood, this is a reference to the appearance that we have recorded in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, where Jesus actually tells the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And Paul says, 500. Most of them are still alive. What's the significance of saying most of them are still alive? The significance is, hey, (laughs) I'll give you their cell phone number. You can call them and talk to them and find out for yourself what they saw. By the way, one or two people that think they saw Elvis, that's a hallucination. But when you have 500 all at the same time, and they go, no, he was really here, saying nothing but a hound dog, and it was great. Um, that's a little different, okay? So, 500 brethren, they can still attest to the event. Then he appeared to James. What's the significance of appearing to James? By the way, this is James, the half-brother of our Lord. Here's the significance. James didn't believe. If you read the gospel of John carefully, you might notice that in John chapter 7, his brothers are actually mocking him. Is it at this time that you're going to go up to Jerusalem and show everybody that you're the Messiah? Woo! Parenthesis, John 7. They said this because they were not believing. James didn't believe, but there was something that changed his mind. The resurrection. James ends up becoming the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And so uh, Tom Schreiner says, uh, James is mentioned because he was like Peter, one of the most respected leaders in the early Christian church. And then we have this, this uh, phrase next, and to all the apostles. Okay? So this could be a reference to another appearance of the 12, or it could be just a wider circle. Remember, You had capital A apostles and lowercase apostles. Uh, So for instance, James and and, and Barnabas are identified as apostles in the book of Acts. And so it could be a wider group. And then this is the most interesting part as far as I'm concerned. And then he says, verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, that little phrase that you see right at the part of verse 8, last of all, Um, it could be, and least of all. So, it's either a chronological statement, I'm the last of the apostles to whom Christ appeared. Or it could be a status statement, which, by the way, he will say exactly the same thing in verse 10, verse 9, about being the least of all the apostles. And he doesn't mean that in terms of last at that point. He means he sees himself as the least significant, all right? Um, I, I actually take it to be uh, a temporal reference here. Paul actually is putting himself at the end of the list as the last of the, those who had an appearance of Christ, okay? But it's what he says next that's really fascinating. Notice this phrase, To one untimely born. What does the ESV do with that? Untimely born? They just copy in the New American Standard. Anybody have a translation that says anything different? Born out of due time. Okay. So, this, this, by the way, is the safest way to translate this word. Um, because it can mean an untimely birth that is, in a sense, a premature birth. But does that imagery actually make sense in terms of what Paul's saying? Not exactly. Um, The other thing is that it can be, uh, it's the same word that's actually used of both miscarriage and abortion. Now, Gordon Fee has an interesting take on this word. He he suggests that the word itself, which is which is ectroma, he suggests that this was a Corinthian name for Paul. Okay? Because the word is often used in extra biblical Greek. To mean somebody who is freakish. Okay. Um, Another scholar wrote a paper. Paul was short, and so maybe it was uh, like freakishly short, like a dwarf. You'd be surprised what you can find when you start digging around theological journals. Anyway, so Fee's so, uh, argument is basically this. Is, uh, th- th- there was a group at Corinth that held Paul in contempt. And he was the ectroma. He was the little freak. Okay? Um, he didn't stack up. And, and of course, we, we actually have some descriptions of Paul and the, none of them are, are very flattering. Okay. Um, Small, by the way, uh, Palos is small, and it is thought to I believe that he had eyes that were pretty close together, big bushy brow, um, receding hairline, widow's peak, and bandy legs and bent over. Okay, not exactly the kind of guy to get his own TV show. So, it's possible that this was a derogatory term that, Paul, that the Corinthians called Paul. But I think, actually, Paul's just using it of himself. You have to remember something. That even though, even though Paul was absolutely confident that, that he was clothed in the righteousness of Christ and that all of his sins had been counted to Christ... Paul was also painfully aware of how unworthy and undeserving he was of the calling that God had put upon his life, right? So, untimely born, born out of due season, um, maybe, maybe Paul saying, um, you know, I actually missed the cut just by a few years. Unlikely, I think. I think just a derogatory term. Whether it was used of him by others or he, him of himself, uh, it, it ends up being somewhat irrelevant because Paul sees himself actually as somebody that was um, that was so undeserving because he had persecuted the church. You have to understand that 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 there is this. There is this wonderful sense of being free and being uh, confident in God's forgiveness of our sins and the salvation that we have, and yet being able to say with David, and my sin is ever before me. Now, it doesn't mean that I torment myself and beat myself up and and, and continually uh, just belittle myself, but there is a sense in which I never forget what I am and what I've done. And that's why Paul can say in one Timothy one fifteen, it's a, a it's a, a trustworthy statement deserving of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, among whom I am president's chief, protos, foremost. You think you're bad? I'm worse. And so Paul sees himself as one who is not even worthy to be an apostle. He wasn't even worthy to have. The, uh, to have Christ appear to him because he was a persecutor of the church and he hated Christ's people. And, and could, could you imagine being Saul of Tarsus and, and, and being filled with rage and hate going into somebody's family, going into somebody's home and tearing a father away from mother and children or, or tearing a mother away all because you have letters from, from the Sanhedrin saying you get to do this and to think that you're serving God and there is a sense in which which Paul's hideousness was very much a part of his identity. Which makes the grace of God all the more stunning. So, the gospel gloriously centers on the things of most importance. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried. Christ was raised. So r- right out of the gate in 1 Corinthians 15, you notice, let me just tell you three things real quick. First, the resurrection is essential. Okay. Well, I'll probably give you another uh, illustration like this, but um, you you, know, you hear people say, um, I heard not too long ago, I think it was a sermon from Tom Schreiner where he was talking to somebody who, who said, you know, the Christian life is such a lovely life that even if it turns out not to be true, um, it still was the best of all lives. Okay. You know what Paul would have said? <laughs> Idiot! You You are a dummy times 10. If it's not true... People should feel sorry for you. Because if it's not true, you've given your life for a lie. So the resurrection is absolutely essential. The resurrection is the linchpin of our faith. And if there's anything in this text that actually should stand out to us, it is the fact that the resurrection is historically true. This is the amazing thing about, you understand Christianity is not the the, the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. Are the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount important? Yes. Do they reflect the ethics of God's kingdom? Yes. Do you get to heaven by being meek? And the answer is no. No. So you can't just say, the teachings of Jesus are so marvelous. Maybe he rose from the dead, maybe he didn't. If he didn't, his teachings are lies. And so it is historically true. Don Carson says, we must see that unlike other religions, the central claims of the Christian faith are irreducibly historical. They either happened or they didn't. But our faith is not merely a historical faith. It's also deeply personal. You need to receive it. You need to stand in it. You need to hold it fast. That which is amazingly doctrinal and irreducibly historical is also by necessity experiential. The, the, the Christ that I encounter is not just simply a historical fact, but he's a living person. That's what makes the difference. And some of you, Jesus has changed your life completely. You you would not be who you are today if it were not for an encounter with the resurrected living Jesus. Okay. Others of you still need to meet him, need to put your faith in him, embrace him, hold him fast. And so this wonderful historical faith of ours is also marvelously experiential. Can you believe all of that stuff in the middle circle and still be lost? You better believe you can. A.W. Tozer used to say, you can be as doctrinally straight as a gun barrel and as empty as one too. And so the things that we hold, we hold of matters of first importance, but we hold them because we've encountered by faith the living Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help all of us to receive the gospel, to receive Christ to stand fast in him, and to hold fast to the things that have been delivered to us. Father, we pray that in in a day where our faith is mocked, it's ridiculed, it's marginalized, it's not even taken seriously, Father, we pray that you would remind us that we have something that the world has no idea about. We know the living, resurrected Christ. Father, we pray that our love for him would deepen our heart for him would enlarge. Strengthen us, Father, with these truths. Strengthen us with, with the evidence of the resurrection and help us to walk with Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.